everybody, my name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to the For the Love podcast. This is Jen. And before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to follow up on something we've been talking about these past few weeks while we've been in this very, very amazing For the Love of Books series. So as as you've heard this week, and really with all the great writers we've been talking to, they each got their start by being mentored, by learning from other great authors, and putting the pieces in place to chase their dreams of writing. So you've probably heard me talk about author school, and I hope you were able to get signed up, but maybe the timing wasn't right. Maybe you're right on the cusp of that big leap into pursuing publishing, but you feel like you just need to do the time and earn your stripes first. So if that's you, there are two great options from the same team behind Author School that I want you to consider. The first is the Clumsy Bloggers Workshop, which is a six-week course that will teach you how to start your own blog, share your words, and grow your own community. Then there's also Author Blog, which is a resource to help writers like you design a website specifically for authors, whether you're a fiction or nonfiction writer. Their websites are built to help you share your words, grow your platform, and sell your books. So you can take advantage of both of these incredible resources by going to authorschool.com slash hatmaker. So when you use that link, just for our For the Love podcast listeners, there's also a built-in 10% discount for both of those services. So you'll get a little love from us to start you on your way to realizing your writing dreams because you guys know what I always say. There is always more room at the table. If you have a dream to write, if you have a story to tell, it's time to tell it. I believe in you. I believe in your work. I believe in your potential. So visit authorschool.com slash hatmaker today to take advantage of these two phenomenal services for authors. Okay, let's get started with today's show. Hey, everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome. Welcome. These past few weeks, we've been talking to the most amazing writers and thinkers about their craft and what compels them to write and keep creating. And it's been amazing for me. I've just had so much fun talking to these authors that I respect and admire and hearing all your feedback on social media. Um, And I'm really glad you've enjoyed this series as much as I have. So wait until you hear about our guest today. She's just the biggest deal. I don't know how else to say it. Um, to tell you the magnitude of Jody's talent and acclaim. I mean, here's a good um, pin. Her last 10 books have all debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Last 10. I'm so um, pleased, pleased to welcome Jody Picot to the podcast today because she is a real force, just one of the great novelists of our time, really. She's written 25 novels, and I bet you've read at least a few of them. And I honestly think I've read, I think I've read all of them. Um, Some of her best known books are My Sister's Keeper, Small Great Things, which I mentioned recently. That was um, her previous book that is powerful, powerful, powerful. Leaving Time, Seeing You Home, 19 Minutes. It goes on and on and on. I think what's great about Jodi, in addition to writing really thoughtful, complicated books that we love to read, is that she challenges her readers to chew on 
why they think the way they do about some of the world's most hand-wringing moral questions and crisis situations, like how we handle human rights based on race and sexual orientation, reproductive health, and so much more. And so her latest book is called The Spark of Light. And I want you to know going into this um, to this episode, listeners, that we're, we're talking about this today. And A Spark of Light tells this very powerful story around an abortion clinic. And, and so we're, we're diving into that discussion and into that conversation. And, and Jody is going to talk about a lot of the research that went into it and what she discovered and her own personal perspective on reproductive rights and what she has, what she learned with the people that she interviewed and shadowed. And so this is complicated. And so I just, I want you to know that right up front. And I want to say it right up front that um, she and I talked a lot about how can we find a way forward when this is just not something we're ever probably as a country going to come together on. We're not going to be unanimous here. Um, everybody feels it's, it, this is a very p- powerful conversation with deep, deep feelings. And so we also talk about what are some ways forward that we can come together? Where are places of connection and common ground? And, um, and so this is, this is one of those moments where we're like, is it possible for us to engage in dialogue across ideology? And so I hope you'll stick with this conversation and, and listen and, and be willing to think or, um, to ask questions or if anything else, just listen to somebody else's perspective. And so we're going to talk about a spark of light. We're going to talk about all the other things. Do you know that Jody has also written five issues of the Wonder Woman comic series? Isn't that awesome? That's she's only the second woman in 75 years to do that. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, Jody graduated from Princeton and the Harvard School of Education. In fact, the Princeton Alumni Weekly named her one of the top 10 living alumni shaping the world of 2018 pretty cool. Um, she and her husband, Tim have three grown kids. They live in New Hampshire with a whole bunch of animals, Springer Spaniels, like I have rescue puppies, two donkeys, 10 chickens, ducks, and the occasional Holstein cow as you do. So this is a really fascinating conversation. Um, she is just a, a talent and a force in literature. And so it's an honor to have her on the podcast today. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jody Picot. Okay, Jody. <laughs> I'm I'm so thrilled to have you on as a part of our For the Love of Books series. I um I have been a fan for so long. I in fact, I just took a picture right before I jumped on uh the call with you of my top bookshelf in which half of it are your novels. And I honestly think I might have read everyone. I don't know if that's possible, but I'm pretty sure it is. Um, so I always talk about you. I, people ask me a lot, what are you reading? Who are your favorite writers? Um, who do you think is a, a just a very phenomenal novelist? And you, I always have you at the top of my list. You are a phenomenal writer, leader, thinker. Thanks for being on today. Thank you for having me. That's crazy. So I've told our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do, and most of them obviously already know. Um, but I wonder if before we kind of get into um, a little bit of shop talk, because um, you are such a career prolific writer, um, and then we'll talk about your new book, A Spark of Light. I wonder if we could go back kind of to the very beginning before you started writing um, all these novels, because I'm very taken. I'm so smitten with the way you do this, because you ask profound questions in your books and do not shy away at all. And I, it makes me think of you as a kid. And I wonder 
if you were kind of an insatiable question asker, even back then, were you always curious about why people make the choices that they do? And I wonder, when did you discover that the world isn't necessarily so black and white, but it's actually pretty gray? So um, I, I can't say that I was this child with insatiable curiosity. Mm. You know, I wasn't I wasn't conducting massive science experiments that cured cancer in my basement or anything. Mm-hmm. But I was a profound reader, and yeah. one of my first memories was being um, three years old. I was reading at about three and a half, and my mom took me to get my library card, and I was so excited about that. Mm. That was like the biggest deal for me because I could come home with a stack of books. Right. I could put them next to my bedside, just like she did. I could read. And I loved, I loved reading and I loved opening worlds that, uh, that books invited me to. I think that, I think that the way I, I probably learned that the world isn't black and white. Um, you know, I, I think that's probably the way all kids learn it, you know, the way that they're bullied or the way things don't work out in school, the way they expect to, um, you know, I had a really beautiful, easy childhood. I grew Mm -hmm. up in the suburbs of New York. My parents were and still are happily married. I had this little brother and I like him. You know, there was Mm -hmm. like no trauma in my life. And, and if you went based on, on that, there's no reason for me to be a writer because writers Mm -hmm. write from this place of deep, right. And I didn't really have that, but I loved going to college. I went to Princeton and I loved it because Every time I sat down with a brilliant professor, I felt like my mind was just cracking open. Mm. Light was pouring into it. And I studied all different kinds of things, everything from, you know, economics to science to literature to creative writing, which was my major. And I loved the act of learning. Mm. That really struck me. And I think that, you know, when I started to work in creative writing, what you're told right away is write what you know. It just didn't take me very long to realize I knew absolutely nothing. I didn't <laughs> that well was, was not that deep. No. So right. instead of writing what I knew, I decided I was going to write what I was willing to learn. And that's, oh, that's great. I think that sort of drove me into this, this passion for research that I, I have. And the fact that when I write my books, sometimes I spend more time researching them than I do physically writing a first draft. Wow. Um, I was on the phone yesterday. My day went from uh, editing um, notes from an Egyptologist and cross-referencing panels for Jehudi Hotep II in Egypt. Oh my gosh! To having a Skype interview with a man who is a quantum mechanics physicist. So you know, (laughs) I think that that for me, you know, that that's really what drives my passion for writing. The fact that the world has become my university. Oh my gosh. I love that answer so much. I'm a curious person too. And I love learning and research is fascinating. And all that really shows through in your books. I mean, it's your, your hard work, your background work is very evident, um, in the way that you bring it sort of to bear in your characters. Uh, When did you know for sure, that you wanted to be like a writer. When did you know you were in this for the long haul, that it was not going to be a hobby? It was not going to be a side hustle. Um, and how did, how did your parents respond? (laughs) I was at Princeton. I was a junior and this was pre cell phone. So we still all had landlines and answering machines. Of course. And, um, I had been in a creative writing course and I had worked on this one particular short story over and over and over again. And, uh, 
And finally, my professor, Mary Morris, said to me, you should send this somewhere. And I, I said, well, like, what do you mean? I'm, write, I'm writing this for a class. And I never thought about it living beyond that class. So she said, well, go send it to Seventeen Magazine. Yeah. I was a starving, poor college student, so I, I couldn't even afford to buy Seventeen. I just copied down the from the master. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I sent the story off to an editor at Seventeen. And a few months later, I came home to an answering machine message saying, we would like to pay you for your, your short story. Yeah. And, you know, I fell off my chair because, I mean, God, I would have paid them to read it. Of course. Um, You know, I called my mom and I said, I'm going to be a writer. (laughs) That is so great. Who's going to support you? (laughs) I love it. Uh, My mom is like my biggest cheerleader. I love her to death. And she is one of my first readers every time I write a book. And I, I would not even have tried to be a writer if not for her. She is always squarely in my corner, but she also provided me with a very good reality check. Sure. Really important for beginning writers because, you know, the truth is the vast majority of writers cannot support themselves. That's right. So they teach or they do another job or, you know, and and I I really needed to hear that and know that before I started to wade into this career because it really did take me a very, very long time before I was contributing anything of worth to the family income. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because we have I have a lot of uh, aspiring writers that listen to this podcast and um you know it's so overwhelming to look at your career and it's so storied and it is so special and so acclaimed but even you started at the beginning. In fact, I think I I read tell me if I if I read this wrong that on the story that you just told with your 17 magazine um short story didn't the um did somebody threw out the first four pages of it, right? That you had just crafted and crafted and crafted. Yeah. Um, first of all, I do think it, it is really important to to point out that people seem to think I had like the Oprah moment, that uh, I had immediate success. I can't tell you how many newspaper reporters call me an overnight success. Well, it was the longest overnight because it took totally. 10 years before anyone even knew I was writing anything. So, you know, there's there's something to be said for perseverance in writing. If you don't believe in yourself, nobody else will. That's so right. Um, but to get back to, to your, your question, yes, yeah. it was Mary Morris, my professor. Yeah. And, you know, here I was, this little girl who got straight A's in high sure. school and walked into Princeton thinking I knew everything. All right. I did not know everything. And in my first creative writing class, um, when I, my piece was being workshopped, I walked in and she asked me to sit on the floor and not say anything. And she handed huh. me um, a construction paper, scissors, and a glue stick. And she said, you are going to cut and paste based on what the class says. And the first question she said was, where does Jody's story really start? And someone said, mm, page four. And she said, yep. And she ripped off the first three pages and threw them over her shoulder. And I sat there for another hour and a half while they cut and pasted my story. And I physically did what they told me. And I was so humiliated. I, I left there, burst into tears. The next day, I got enough courage to go to Mary's office. And uh, during her office hours, I said, why did you do that to me? And yeah. he said, because you needed it and because you can take it. And hmm. I was so mad. I edited that story and edited that story and edited that story until, as I said, Mary finally said to me, you need to send this somewhere outside of a class. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that is another key piece to, to becoming a writer for the long haul is developing enough um, stamina not just stamina for it, but a thick skin because critique is part of the deal. 
that is that is a part of the deal and it's tempting to get very very precious with all of our words very precious yep and if stand the heat. You just, you don't belong in that particular kitchen. Honestly, you're right. Once it's out there in the world, people apparently have permission to say whatever they want about your books. You know, they can write what they want on the internet and they can put what they want on Amazon reviews. And it really is no place for thin skin. My favorite Um, thing is when I go to Amazon and I get a one-star review because someone's book got delivered late. Oh yes, I've had that too. I'm like, wow, I'm so sorry, but really that has nothing to do with with me or what I wrote. Right, like thanks a lot, Mary from Connecticut. Um, it's really, really a bummer. One thing I want to make sure that all the listeners know today, because this is, I mean, this is extraordinary. I don't care who you are or how you slice it. This is really extraordinary. You have had either a baby or a book every single year since 1992. So you have had three babies. I don't have like 12 babies. It's just three of them. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Right. Let me get the the numbers right here. The balance That's three human babies and 25 books. I mean, 25 novels and your novels, as you alluded to earlier, are they're, they're dense and they're packed full of research. They're not, you don't skim the surface on anything. So this is deep writing. It's sometimes difficult writing. It's long form. And so, I mean, I just marvel at your capacity. I really do. Do you, I'm, I'm curious, like as a form of craft, do you write do you write every single day? I I would just love for you to talk for a minute about how you manage to live such a full life, both personally and professionally, and, and to manage um, this level of, of really phenomenal output. I was much more impressive when I was younger, and I had three kids under the age of four, and I was their primary caretaker. Yeah. Um, I used to write whenever... Barney was on television. Right. We're at nursery school when uh, they weren't hitting each other over the head with a sippy cup. You know, anytime I could, I would sit down in a 15 minute block and I would write something. Wow. Uh, I, I was the mom who took my laptop to swim practice and to nursery school pickup. Um, you know, I learned that if you have even 15 minutes, you can get something out. Because of that, I don't really buy into writer's block. I, I get mm. that question a lot. I think writer's block is for people who have too much time on their hands. And the way I prove this is by saying, hey, remember when you were in school and you had a paper due the next day and you had writer's block? Isn't it miraculous how that writer's block cleared up the night before that Great paper point. was due? You know, Great point. Right. So uh, if, to me, what you put down on the page can be fixed. You can't mm-hmm. edit a, a blank page, but you can edit a bad page. And even when I'm not feeling it, even when the muse isn't striking, you know, I'll sit down and I'll write and then I'll go back and I'll fix it. Um, and of course, for me, things got much easier with this, this magical thing called organized schooling. Yes. Yeah. Glory. And that was when I really, you know, kind of hit my stride because when they left, I started working. And when they came home, I magically transformed into a mom again. Yeah. Now, you know, when my kids are all out of the house, they're all older and, you know, some are married at this point, um, I basically stick to that schedule. If it's a writing day, I go up to my office at around eight. I finish working at around four. I do it five days a week. I don't work on weekends unless I'm at the end of a book and just driving to get it done. Mm. Um, And, you know, it's just for me, it's really about balance. It it is a work day. It definitely is work. Um, I'm not sitting here waiting for an angel to land on me to inspire me. Sometimes it's not fun work and sometimes it's glorious. 
I appreciate that because, um, somewhere, uh, an idea sort of floated into the universe that writing is very dreamlike and magical and, yeah. and you just kind of capture lightning in a bottle somehow. And, and it's just when in fact it is just a J O B it is work. I think this sense of treating it like a real job, like real work, incredible work, mm-hmm. um, is the difference between sometimes writers who make it and some writers who don't. Right. Um, and it's not that simple. I'm reducing it down and eliminating a ton of mitigating factors, but, um, uh, diligence, there's something to be said for it. Yeah. Uh, that I am, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to take this project seriously. I'm going to take myself seriously mm-hmm. as a writer. Let me, I heard you say something that I am very drawn to. Uh, and this is, this informs the way that you write. You said a lot of people have opinions, mm-hmm. but I don't think they ever stop themselves to ask why their opinions are the way they are. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that quote. And I think you challenge us pretty masterfully in your books um, to take what can be a very complex or a complicated discussion or issue and really burrow down underneath. Why is this creating a reaction to me that it is? Why do I feel the way I feel? Why do I believe what I believe? Because you're drawn to exploring moral questions that are not black and white and situations that affect us differently based on race or gender or, um, orientation or socioeconomic background. And so you write things that make us feel uncomfortable. I guess that's the best way to say it. And that takes a lot of guts. And so I wonder if you could talk for a minute about, you could have gone any which direction. You're a creative writer. You're a novelist. You're a storyteller. I mean, you could have done romance. You, there's a million paths in front of somebody who's as gifted as you are. Um, what, how did you decide to take the leap and write these big question books that you write? Well, first I should tell you that historically, um, when I started writing these, people were like, huh, what, what is, mm. you know, I, I'm not the first person to write fiction that, that, head does a head first dive into morality. I would Mm -hmm. kind of put that on Dickens, you know, but, um, but it's not, it's not an easy read. It's not something that you you do read and escape into the stories. I think of the people I create, but you're probably left with this, this sort of sense of, well, now what do I make of all this when you finish the book? And there are some books that are pure escape and pure enjoyment that don't require that level of thinking. For me as a writer, in order to stay fresh and not write the same book over and over again, and we all know people who do that, sure, um, I really need to engage myself. I need to challenge myself. And sometimes I challenge myself with format. Sometimes I challenge myself mm-hmm. with topics. Sometimes um, I challenge myself with, uh, with research. It, it really depends on the book. But for me, I find it most interesting to take a really contentious issue Hmm. and to show myself and the reader both sides of that issue. If I've done my job, you're going to have a really hard time figuring out which side of the argument I'm on as a human being. That's true. Right. You do not show your hand. Right. The idea is for you to be able to see both sides. It's look, I'm a writer. It is not my job or my right to tell you what to think, Mm. but it is my job and my right to get you to question how you got to that opinion. Because Mm. let's face it, a lot of us form our opinions at the knees of our parents or our our religious leaders or, um, you know, our history, a million other things. But we very rarely 
challenge those because they're formed so young and because Mm -hmm. other people have such a hand in forming them. And as we grow up and evolve and begin thinking for ourselves, it's worth poking that with a stick. Yes, it is. Especially when you get to some topics that really don't have easy answers. And most of the ones that I tend to talk about don't. You're right. I mean, I I can't think of another novelist who can uh, evoke in me some well of compassion for a white supremacist, but you managed to do it with this very nuanced way that you write and you bring background and perspective and history and context to front. And it's good work. Like I, I find that incredibly important work, especially right now in which I mean, obviously, if you just have eyes and ears, our everything is so incredibly polarized right now. And it is it is all or nothing. It is scorched earth theory. And so um, having a leader in any capacity, be it through fiction or through politics or through faith or a really any, any space that is able to sort of take us by the hand and force us to examine more than one side and more than one space. It's, I find this to be incredibly important work right now. This is in fact, to me, it reminds me of Brene Brown's work right now. Of course, she does it sort of in the, um, intellectual and emotional zone, um, as a doctor, as a therapist too, but, uh, you're leading us in a similar way and doing it through storytelling. And so uh, writing about the hard things that you write about, um, how do you, I'm curious how you're, do you marinate on an idea for quite some time before you decide this is the core of my next book? Or do you have this sort of, are you paying attention to culture? Is it things that are sort of white hot in the public square? Um, Is it something that's inside of you? I'm wondering how you choose the center of each of your next new book. So a lot of people assume that I look for the hottest issue and pick that, and it's the exact opposite. I would say Mm. issues pick me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Look, there's no shortage of contentious issues in the world. Right, you are. But um, it needs to be something that is is making me question things as Mm. a wife, as a woman, as an American, uh, as as any, any of the labels that I put on myself. Uh, if it's something that's keeping me up at night and worrying me, it's probably a very good idea for a book. So mm. yes, in some, to some extent, it is culturally based because things that are not bothering me now might bother me five years from now. In yeah. other ways, it could be based on my age or my life experience. There has to be this weird junction of the two. Mm-hmm. Is it challenging for you to live in such heavy spaces? Because I, I, I know this well, as a writer, you don't just you don't just shut your laptop at four o'clock and leave it all behind. Um, especially in the spaces that you move into. I mean, when you're in domestic violence and you're in human rights crisis and for extended periods of time, and you kind of are holding all these viewpoints inside of you, um, do, do you have best practices for sort of restoring your well after plumbing all these depths? So this is, the truth is that it's not hard for me to do that. Hmm. There's such a marked division between the lives of the characters that I create and my life that it's very easy for me to walk out of my office and go downstairs and have this awesome husband and four amazing puppies waiting for me. And, you know, my life is, is honestly so good. It's disgusting. And, (laughs) and so I'm really lucky to be able to, to, 
create a very sharp break between the fiction I create and the life that I'm living. Um, you know, that said, I do agree that you carry your office between your ears. So very often, especially when my kids were younger, if I were, was driving them somewhere, if I had an idea that I knew I wanted to write about, I always kept a Sharpie in the car and I would write on my hand if I were driving and I came up with an idea. And when I ran out of my own hands, I would write on my children because I didn't. Oh my gosh. You know? So you do always have that sense that what if, you know, a stroke of, of something untangles, some, some sense of a, a knot you've got in your plot untangles when you're in the middle of the shower, you know, it, it can happen anywhere. And so you always have to be prepared for that. That is so true. If you just had to, I, I'm sure it's different from book to book, but Let's just say from the time you start writing, you're past the research phase, which for you, as you mentioned, is sometimes the biggest yeah. slice of the pie. But once you put your fingers on the keyboard and you start writing, around how long does it take you to write a novel? About nine months. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. Um, and so, and then you add research onto that and you're in a year and a half cycle there. For a book. It's, it's usually the truth is that I, I was on a yearly cycle for many, many years. And then um, about four years ago, I started going every other year just because yeah. of other work that I've been doing, other writing that I've been doing um, as a librettist for uh, Broadway bound shows. So wow. that's incredibly fun, very different, so. exercising a different muscle, allows me to collaborate in a way I don't when I'm writing a novel. And so that's kind of filling up the rest of my time. Oh, that is fun. I like that challenge. Hey guys, I wanted to break into the show for a minute to ask you a question. Who around here loves to clean? There's somebody out there who probably does, God bless you, but most of us dread it. But what we do all love is when everything is clean, right? So a while back, I discovered something that makes cleaning more fun, better smelling, and healthier. Grove Collaborative. You've probably already heard about it. They make it easy to discover the very best natural cleaning products to take care of your home and your family. And they make sure you never run out of your favorites and they deliver it right to your door. My love language. Grove Collaborative carries so many great brands like Method, my very favorite, Mrs. Myers, and Burt's Bees also some of their own label stuff. They even sell some products in concentrates. Did you know that most of our cleaning products we buy are like 95% water? Well, with Grove, you get this beautiful reusable bottle to use for the products that come in concentrate. Just put a little bit in the bottle, add your own water, and clean. What's fun about Grove, too, is that they've got so many great scents. And get this, there is a slew of fall scents available soon, like apple cider, peony blossoms, mum, and crowd favorite, pumpkin. Who doesn't love pumpkin in the fall? So because we are all about telling you the things we love to make life a little easier, and in this case, better smelling, We've partnered up with Grove Collaborative to extend an offer to you, our beloved listeners. You can take advantage of this awesome new customer offer so that everyone listening can try your own box of Grove stuff. This special offer comes with a free Mrs. Meyer gift set that's worth $30. So when you place your order of $20 or more, you get Mrs. Meyer's hand soap, dish soap, multi-surface spray, a kitchen towel, plus free shipping and a VIP trial membership. So to get all this, you've got to go to grove.co slash for the love. So it's not grove.com. It's grove.co slash for the love. Now back to our show. 
I wanted to let's let's move into your new book. Mm-hmm. It's called Spark of Light. And in your in your wonderful gifted way, you have put a difficult conversation in front of us and forced us to examine it from several sides. Now, first of all, from run, one writer to another, absolutely masterful work on the narrative structure. Thank you me. mentioned earlier that sometimes you challenge yourself with structure. And this is so interesting because it's the book starts with a crisis, like a huge crisis moment, and then you tell the story from multiple perspectives backwards, right? Like an, an hour going back an hour at a time. Really interesting, really, really provocative. Um, uh, I, I can't think of another book I've seen do that, but can you just tell everybody a little bit about what this book is about, what inspired it, why you chose to write it and why you chose to write it this way? Sure. So the book um, is about a clinic, the only surviving abortion clinic in Mississippi. And on a sunny September day, um, a gunman walks into the clinic and starts shooting. And the book spools backward, as you said, so that you begin to learn uh, why each of the people in the clinic was there at that moment, what brought them to the clinic that day. So by the time you get to the very end of the book, it's the earliest moment of the day. It's when everybody mm. them. What is it that brought people here? Um, what is it that that brings us to our convictions and our beliefs? What is the moment of conception for all that we believe about when life starts and whether or not reproductive rights are something that we have to fight for as women? Mm-hmm. And you know, and it follows a whole range of characters. So you not you don't only learn about the gunman, but you also see him in counterpoint to the hostage negotiator who is on the outside mm-hmm. who. Learns uh, partway into his investigation that his 15-year-old daughter is one of the hostages. Yeah. Of course, we expect tension points from you. I'm ex- of course his 15-year-old daughter is a hostage. Um, <laughs> so obviously, and you do this well, um, of just sort of holding the story out to us and letting us um, receive it as we do and think about it from where we're at. But I was, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your research going into this book and your perspective and what you learned and some of the viewpoints that you're, um, that you're putting in front of us to learn from and to listen to. I would love to. Um, so the reason I wrote this book, the reason this one hit me at this time is because I was thinking about the fact that when I was in college, I had a very good friend who was in her first trimester, found out she was pregnant, was in the first trimester, and after many tearful nights and discussions with her boyfriend, decided to get an abortion. Mm-hmm. I a thousand percent supported her. Mm-hmm. I do identify as pro-choice. Right. And I um, you know, I, I anything I could do to be there for her. Obviously, I was I was gonna be there. Well, fast forward now, years later. And I am pregnant with my third child and I am exactly as pregnant as my friend was when she mm. took the pregnancy. And I was having a complication and wound up in uh, a radiologist's office. And he said to me, well, either it's going to stick or it's not. I mm. mean, great bedside manner there. And, um, and I was devastated sure. because to me, that was already a baby. Mm. And it, you know, everything worked out okay. You'll be happy to know that was my daughter, my third born. Mm-hmm. But I, I wondered how could that be? 
Hmm. How could I have shifted so dramatically in my thoughts? And to me, that was so fascinating. Where we draw the line Hmm. Uh, about what we believe um, when it comes to reproductive rights changes, not just Hmm. whether you identify as pro-life or pro-choice, but for one individual woman over Hmm. the course of her own lifetime, what you believe at 15 is not what you believe at 30, which is not what you believe at 42. Hmm. And given that laws are black and white, and when yeah. we talk about reproductive rights, we are always talking about laws. We are talking about Roe versus right. Wade. We're talking yeah. about confirming Justice Kavanaugh. Right. Well, how do you legislate in black and white when women are so many shades of gray? Mm. And that was why I wrote this particular book. That's your jumping off point, which I love because it's so human. Right. It's, right. It, it's out of this sort of sterile space of policy mm-hmm. and legislation and kind of into the human life, which is where right. it lives. Yeah. That's where this lives. Right. It is, these are, it's real people and it's real families and real yeah. moms. And, um, I, I really, I love that that's what's stuck in your craw. Yeah. Um, to sort through and pick through right. what, what does some of your research show you in terms of, um, uh, abortion rights and what actually affects them and, and sort of what really has some sort of bearing yep. on those statistics. Yeah. Okay. So I have so much to say. So well, let's hear all, it. <laughs> I have a podcast. First of all, one out of four women will have an abortion in her lifetime. Right. 88% of those occur in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. And, um, you know, when, when you begin to look at abortion rates, They have declined, but that's actually a really crappy statistic because when you break it down even further, you learn for wealthy women, they've declined by um, 24%, but for poor women, they have climbed by 18%. And what we know is that seven out of 10 women who terminate a pregnancy make less than $22,000 a year. Hmm. And 75% of women who terminate a pregnancy say the reason they did so was because they couldn't financially care for a child. Right. And we'll come back to this point at the end. Okay. Um, I learned that there are lots of fallacies about abortion. Of course, the one you hear all the time is that if we limiting limit abortions by making them illegal, then that's going to end the number, reduce the number of abortions. It's going to end mm-hmm. abortion. We know for a fact that's actually not true because in right. the 50s, there were between like 200,000 and 1.2 million unsafe abortions. And all that Mm. really happens when you legislate against abortion is that it polarizes even further. Wealthy Mm. women can move and get an abortion overseas. Uh, Poor women can't. So you become, as a woman, a victim of your zip code. Mm. Uh, The other big fallacy, which is something we hear a lot now, is about defunding Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. That's necessary because, uh, you know, they're the ones who, who... keep, um, who have the highest rate of performing abortions. Well, Planned Parenthood is a really interesting organization. And what most people don't realize is that abortions are 3% of their activity. Hmm. 97% of their activity is providing healthcare like STD screenings, cancer screenings, contraception, um, things that, that are covered actually by federal funds which is great because a lot of poor women can't afford it otherwise. The only part of Planned Parenthood that is not covered by federal funding already right now Mm -hmm. are abortions. And that's why if you need an abortion and you go in, you have to pay for it. Right. And, you know, there is no government surplus fund that will pay for your abortion. So if we defund Planned Parenthood, 
literally all they would be able to do are abortions. Oh, I see what you're saying. You see what I'm saying? I mm-hmm. don't think that the opponents of Planned Parenthood understand that. So it's really great to be able to say that out loud. Mm-hmm. And then I also spoke to 151 women who have terminated a pregnancy. And of those 151 women, one woman regretted it. All 151 thought about them every single day. Interesting. And they also said that when it came to writing the book, only about 25 of them were willing to be acknowledged. And Mm -hmm. some of those were with pseudonyms because they have not told their their parents, their kids, their spouses, their their partners um, about the fact that they had an abortion. They live with this extreme shame, Mm -hmm. which to me is heartbreaking. The fact that women's stories don't matter that women are stigmatized for something that one in four of them will do over the course of a lifetime mm-hmm. makes me very nervous. Uh, I, I just don't like that feeling. And I wish that, um, I hope this book erases, you know, some of, of that stigma. And I did also speak to people who are pro-life, which mm-hmm. was really eye-opening for me because mm-hmm. I expected zealots, you know, and, sure. um, and crazy activists. And they were lovely people who right. really have a very deep conviction, just like people on the other side do. Um, so, you know, it was really interesting to fit all that into a book. And what I really hope people come away with is the idea that, as I said, laws are black and white and, you know, um, and women aren't. So let's take laws off the table and let's start to think how can we come together on this topic in a way that I don't think we as humans ever will, to be honest. Hmm. Um, I think we both sides come from places of such deep conviction. And one of the things that, that I really think we have to do is look outside of laws to begin to think, okay, if we can say flat out, nobody wants to have an abortion, not even the women who have them. This is a last choice. So if we really want to reduce the number of abortions, what's the easiest way to do it? Hmm. Contraception, right? Right. You know, so in the U.S. in uh, 2012, there was a study and um, there are 31 teenage girl births per thousand. In Canada, it's 14 per thousand. In France, it's six per thousand. The difference between our Mm. country and other countries is free access to birth control and to um, also to uh, uh, free access to um, uh, health education about Mm -hmm. reproduction. And, you know, the, the camp that tends to be the most uh, verbal and active uh, anti-abortion, many of them also say contraception is a really bad thing. Right. I don't get that. I want someone to explain that to me because that's really the easiest way to reduce the number of abortions. That's right. And, you know, to me, that suddenly stops being about the rights of a baby. And suddenly it becomes about controlling the sexuality of women. And someone's mm-hmm. got to answer for that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I want to hear that that conversation. I want to have that conversation. I think the other thing that we have to ask is um, there are laws that could be passed that make this, that reduce the number of abortions, but they're not the laws we're looking at. If we mm-hmm. know, again, that economics are the driving force here, right. 
what if we raise the minimum wage so that women had more money and could raise another child? What mm -hmm. if there was government-funded daycare to eliminate the threat of losing your job if you have a child? Mm -hmm. What if there was universal health care that paid not just for maternity care, but also for the health of your kid for the next 18 years of its life? Right. What if you penalized employers who docked women from getting promotions because they had to keep leaving the workforce to have those okay. babies? Mm -hmm. You know, there are lots of ways that we could actually create a system that makes that choice more of a choice. And mm -hmm. if that was the case, many of these women who say they terminated because it's an economic decision right. might choose something else. So I feel like we need to reroute this conversation. We mm -hmm. need to be having these conversations and we're not doing it yet. I think those you raise really interesting points and really good questions that we should be asking. And, um, you know, in my experience, there's a pretty heavy responsibility and a much broader um, impact when, when, you know, as you use the term pro-life, um, I, I would consider a pro-life ethic to go well beyond the womb. And that's when we consider the life of this mother and her family and her socioeconomic status and all the social and factors that you mentioned, they matter. They right. matter. They matter yes. to the health of a family. They they matter to their capacity to provide. And um, those are very, very real. And the correlation between these is high. And yes. so these, to me, are the questions underneath that actually mean something. That they, they matter. They have impact. They, um, they really um, affect the, the, the data and the statistics. And so I like, I like these questions and I like us looking at it and saying, well, these, these laws are going to, you know, they're going to disproportionately affect communities of color and women right. of color yeah. and, um, and, and spaces of, of lower socioeconomic status. And so, um, I, I think if, if, if anybody purports to care about human life, these are very necessary questions to have right. on the table. Very, exactly. very necessary. And, and it, it is just common sense to say uh, contraception needs to be a part of the conversation. And so um, I, I'm, a, I'm guessing that you bring sort of all of this to the book, right? Do you all lace all this through and, yeah. and, and bring some of the laws and the actual policy on, to the table? Absolutely. Yeah. And not only that, but, you know, like I, I tried to introduce characters to remind you that the women who use these clinics are not necessarily all women who were going there to terminate a pregnancy. So one of my favorite characters is a woman named Olive, who is a 70 something lesbian. She is the last person in the world who would be terminating. That's true. <laughs> you know, but, but she's there and, you know, and she's using the, the reproductive um, the healthcare services of, of this clinic, right. as opposed to the reproductive services, the reproductive mm. services. And it, it's just really important to realize that when you paint with a broad swath and you eliminate the access to reproductive rights, you are doing more than just mm -hmm. talking about abortion. You are talking about places where many, many women get their healthcare and rely on that healthcare. So you just mentioned Olive yeah. and, and you, this is how you do your work. You, you, you do it through story mm -hmm. and you do it through people. And I don't know a writer who manages their characters with such a deft hand. I mean, you are 
this is your, this is your special gift um, <laughs> of giving us very complicated, complex characters, a lot of interpersonal um, drama and nuance. And it's interesting when we read your books, because um, you're so thorough in fleshing out your characters. We feel like we know them. I mean, we do. When we um, get to the end of My Sister's Keeper, we have to lay on the ground and just <laughs> sob and right. sob. I remember where I was sitting where I when I got to the end of that story and I told you on Twitter, mm-hmm. we're going to have to talk about my sister. I mean, that was, I didn't see it coming. I didn't know. I didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was the right ending. I, you said you were going to defend it. We'll get there in a second. But, oh, right, right, right. Um, uh, but you, you, you craft your characters in such a way that we're invested. I mean, invested. And even into some of the ones I didn't like at first, or I didn't want to be invested in. I didn't want to care about what happened to them. And you make me care um, about their future too. And, um, and I appreciate the way that you do that. It's like voodoo. I don't know how you do it, but we end up sympathizing um, because you allow us to sort of see things from their perspective. And I thought that this quote from you um, out of your your address to Princeton's um, 2016 class day kind of spoke to this idea. This is what you said in that address. Don't just hear, but really understand a different point of view. You may not change your mind, but you will change the dynamic between you and the person who's speaking. Question a solution to the problem but never question his motives or his character. That's the difference between sowing the seeds of hate and creating a foundation of respect. I just feel like we should cross stitch that on every pillow in the country right now. You're, you're really giving us something important, which that is ideas and character are not always the same thing. And listening matters. Can you just talk about this for a second? I would love to. Um, so it's it's very interesting, and it's interesting for me to talk about in the context of reproductive rights, particularly. I mean, look, Jen, I wrote an entire book on racism. I was trolled yes. by white supremacists. Yes, you did. And, you know, I will tell you that even the white supremacists were not as vitriolic in the hmm. comments they sent me on social media as people who pur- purport to be pro-life. Hmm. Uh, I am yeah. shocked at some of the things that are said. Um, and And to me... Like I said, I really believe we as a nation will never agree when it comes to abortion. I think that what I believe is deeply ingrained, the the fact that that a woman has the right to choose and make her own healthcare decisions, I really firmly believe that. And I also absolutely believe that other people feel just as viscerally, no, 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 the minute that is a fertilized egg, it becomes a person. I I really understand that they believe that. I do. So I don't see us being able to agree on, you know, where where does life begin? Knowing that, how do we rub along? You know, I feel like it's very easy to judge people who think differently from you. And I think that the answer is to enter a conversation with this thought in the front of your mind. Nobody is perfect. Hmm. No decision that anyone makes is something that they should be judged for because we don't know what brought them to that point. And we never will know unless we walk in their shoes. Right. So I suggest reaching across the aisle, have a conversation with someone who doesn't think like you do. I am well aware that many of your listeners do not think like I do on this particular point. And that's okay. Yeah. Totally get it. And I totally respect that. I am willing to listen to you 
but only if you are willing to listen to me. Mm. You may find yourself agreeing with some of my points, and I may find myself agreeing with some of your points. That's right. And at least we will have that. Mm. And I model this all the time on my own social media. If someone comes at me and starts giving me death threats and telling me that, you know, that my children are horrible people, I will mm. block them. Right. But if you think something that's different from me and you're willing to have a conversation about it with respect, I am absolutely willing to do the same. And mm. that is what I think we are not doing right now in our country. I think we are in our own little bubbles. We are only listening to the newscasts that make us feel good about our opinions. That's right. Um, and, you know, I, here's the bottom line. Politically, no matter where you stand right now, that has really nothing to do with morality. Hmm. People know what's right and wrong. And I believe that that transcends party. I really hmm, do. That's good. That's good. And there is something that happens there. I feel it in my own gut too. And and I, I sort of preach the same thing. This is, this is a message that I feel passionately about, which is... Um, productive dialogue and, and giving one another the benefit of the doubt, yeah. which is like a old fashioned idea that almost seems old timey at this point. Um, and getting out of our silos, which frankly, I mean, I, I'm first in line as an offender. It's easier to be in an echo chamber. It's just, it requires so much less of me and it's comforting because I feel like, see, we're all, we all agree. We, we know what's right and they all don't. Um, the other thing you look at a book like a spark of light and you know, I've had people read it who say, Oh, this is, this is a book that's pro-life. And I've had people read it who say, Oh, this is pro-choice. That's so interesting. (laughs) You know, I mean, and you should be able to find your, your people in there. You should, but it's not that simple. Like I said, there is 151 women who had an abortion. They all still think about it every day because they, Mm. they understood the gravity of the decision they were making, which I think is a grace that a lot of people on the other side don't allow. And by the same token, you know, even someone who is pro-life can understand that many of those are are women. There are many women who are pro-life, but I think they would also agree that women are autonomous creatures who do have the capacity to make decisions about themselves and don't want to be controlled by a patriarchy. They can at least agree to that. Yes. So, so where do we find that middle ground? And like I said, I do think it, it comes in having honest conversations about things like economics and contraception that we are not yet talking about. That's good. I really like what you bring to the table. And I think there's a lot of room around all of those questions um, for conversation and, and, and effective um, space to sort of move forward together and the things we can come together on. Because frankly, as you mentioned, um, even in the pro-life camp, when you're talking about one in four women who are making this choice, it's not all them and us, you know, we are that, that that's our sisters and our daughters and our best friends and our neighbors too. And so I think it's a mistake to ever imagine, um, in a discussion as fragile and personal, um, as reproductive rights and abortion, that everybody in the room is on the same page or everybody in the room has had the same experience. There is a, there's a compassion necessary for this to, um, uh, to go anywhere at all. 
um, and to create any sort of common ground where we can love one another well in the midst of it. And, and you've, you've, you've set the table for us. And what I like, I really like that you just said some people, they'll walk away from your book thinking, I think she's (laughs) pro-life or I think maybe she's pro-choice and they're not sure because you put it to us. You allow us to consider this complex space, um, and think it through in our lives. One, One thing that I've heard you say, and I like this term that you consider yourself an accidental activist. Um, and you said, sometimes you don't know what you're capable of until you're told no. I'm so I'm, I'm a, that's my, that kicks me into gear. That's my fuel. Um, so obviously this is a time right this minute when a lot of us are accidentally discovering that we too are activists come to find out. So knowing that you've spent years and years thinking about big questions and marginalized voices, I'm just curious on your opinion, what do you think is the next place that we are going to see people fighting for their voices to be heard. I just, I wonder if you have a prediction and, and what you think maybe the next 10 years might look like in the world of activism as more and more of us kind of discover our voices. So first of all, I think that, that we are going to be ceding activism to the young. Oh, me too. I think it is the next generation that is going to lift us because um, hmm. I think we're we're stuck, to be honest. And this sounds terrible, but I do think there are, there's a, an old guard that almost needs to die out before hmm. we can move forward at this point. We're kind of stuck in, in park or reverse even. Um, I do think that uh, it is those young people that are going to remind us of the intersectionality of causes. Hmm. Um, like for example, I think it's really interesting the way the Parkland survivors have made sure to include the, uh, discussion about gun violence in inner cities Mm. and make it not just a, you know, not, not just a white person's issue. Um, Mm -hmm. like a bunch of white kids got shot at a high school. I love the way that they've tried really hard to be inclusive in that, Mm -hmm. that sense. I think that's really important. Making sure that if someone's voice is not being heard, like yes. the Parkland survivors did, give the space for someone from the inner cities of you know Chicago or wherever there has been a lot of gun violence, someone of color to stand up and speak. And that's I think good. that's what's going to have to happen uh, in terms of immigration. I deeply agree with you. And, and the truth is, with any marginalized group, in history and now, it's not that they don't have a voice. They have a voice and they have something to say. It's just that nobody is listening. Um, nobody is giving them platform. And you're not the first person to make this comparison um, yeah. to that sort of time in our recent history. And I, I do, it, it's a time for us to keep on our toes um, and to pay attention. I always, my default is to listen to the marginalized voice. That's the first voice that I believe and I trust. Um, and so I, I appreciate your approach there and your commitment to listening to the margins. You just, you've done it now for decades, just right. decades. And, and, and if I can circle back to spark of light for just a hot moment, you sure can. I, you know, I, I think it's really important for women, no matter where they fall on the issue of reproductive rights and abortion rights to recognize that women are still a marginalized voice in this. That's true. And right. that some of the policies that would overturn Roe versus Wade or restrict abortion are often ways to keep women in a neat little box. Yeah. 
So, you know, in addition to whatever beliefs you hold about personhood, hmm. you need to address that as well. You know, what's interesting, Jody, is I was recently in DC um, with a group of influencers and we were, um, we had meetings for a couple of days with members of the GOP in, in which we were urging them to restore f- global funding for health for women and children, um, which is, you know, on the, yeah. on the chopping block and which of, you know, that's not just a, an empty policy. That means that's millions yeah. of lives. It, right. that, that has very real repercussions. Um, but it was, I had never really worked on Capitol Hill in that capacity. Yes. And there was, a, there was one point in the day that I turned to our sort of our nonprofit leader who was um, organizing the trip for us. And I said, I have two questions. Um, where are the people of color and where are the women and to, to see, to just look around just observationally, if you were, if, if I were to just to decide, okay, well, these are the elected officials. So this must be the general makeup of this country. I'd be way off. Um, you know, it was, it was white men. And so that's, who's making the decisions for all of us. So when it comes to women, when it comes to communities of color, when it comes to different faiths, mm-hmm. um, it w- representation matters. And oh, so back, yes. back to your point, yeah. that is one thing as women, we ought to be able to come together on and say, well, there's just not enough, uh, there's not enough of us up there representing us. Right, right. And so uh, there's a lot of decisions being made about us without our voice at the table. It's absurd. You're it's crazy. 100% right. I, I could not agree more. Yes. So that's why I'm always telling people vote the women into office. Yeah. I'm, I'm paying attention to all these really exciting women of color getting elected yeah. right now. It's, My it's husband a- actually said to me yesterday, he goes, you know what, if I don't know what's happening in an election, I'm voting for the women because I'm running <laughs> the world. I was like, yes, you go. That's am- You've trained him well. Yeah. You've trained him well. Okay. Let me ask you three last little questions. These are questions I'm asking everybody in the book series. Cool. Um, we've had so many amazing authors in this series and you are just I'm just so grateful for your time and for your the talent that you've shared with us for all these years. So here's the first one. What's the first book that you ever read that you distinctly remember having a pretty major impact on you? So it was Gone with the Wind. And I read this book and suddenly I I wasn't just analyzing it as a reader. I was just stepping back for a, a minute and I said to myself, wow, Margaret Mitchell created like this whole world out of words. I could smell Mm. it. I could feel it. I could taste it. And I could do that. Yeah. And like, it was really the first time that I thought maybe I could be a writer. Oh Um, my gosh. I will always think of that as the beginning. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. How about this? What's one book in your life? Now, I don't actually know if you're a rereader, so you may not have an answer to this, but what's one book in your life that you have read over and over again? Well, I'm going to cheat on this one a little. Okay. Let me tell you a book that I've read to someone else over and over. Oh, that's fine. That counts. And it was uh, my daughter, and it's the picture book, The Paper Bag Princess by Robert Munch. Okay. Which I love because it is about a princess named Elizabeth who um, is uh, you know, in love with this prince, basically, and a dragon comes and burns down the entire kingdom and kidnaps the prince. And uh, she is left with no clothes and has to put on a paper bag. And she goes off to find him and to save him from the dragon with only her wits. 
Hmm. And at the very, very end of it, um, he looks at her and he goes, you know, Elizabeth, you sure don't look like a princess dressed like that. And she was like, well, you look like a prince, but you're a bump. And she walks off. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is amazing. <laughs> she dropped the mic. Um, like, it's the best girl power book for a young girl. And I read it to my daughter over and over again, and she's grown up to be a pretty amazing woman. So um, I like to think it worked. That's fantastic. Okay. And then this one, this is a twist on a question that I ask all the guests in every series. Um, Do you have a book that is saving your life right now? So I, I tried to interpret that, you know, Uh to me, saving my life, I'm interpreting it as like getting creative juices flowing. I love that. That absolutely is. Yeah. Cause a lot of times I can, I can read books and I'm like, Oh, this is good. You know, whatever. But then like I, I suddenly I'll read something and I'm like, Oh, yes, that's exactly what I meant by the question. So that book is a book called the seas S E A S by Samantha hunt. It's an old book. She is a highly literary writer and it is a retelling of the Undine story. Um, A girl who is either crazy and thinks she is a mermaid or maybe actually is a mermaid Hmm. and uh, falls in love with this, this guy who comes back from war and has extreme PTSD. The way it is written is so beautiful Hmm. that I can't stop thinking of it. And I am not a highlighter, but I highlighted, I don't know, 75% of that book. Ah, okay. Listen, listeners, we're going to have all these books linked over on the transcript in case you want to see what all the fuss is about. Okay. And before I let you go, I just want to just put a, put a, pick that pin up that I stuck in a second ago. And just, I want to just hear from you for one minute on my sister's keeper. And I, so anyone that's listening and hasn't read it, just turn it off. This is a spoiler alert. Um, let me tell you that at, when that book was written, it was the first book my oldest son read. He was 12. You know, he was the first book he ever read by me. Okay. And when he finished, I looked over and I saw him just crying on the couch. Oh, yes. And he ran up to his room and he slammed the door. Yes. And I went up and I knocked and I said, Kyle, would you like to talk? And he opened yeah. the door and he said, I don't want to talk to you right now. <laughs> so I get it. Um, the ending of my sister's keeper and we're talking about the book not the terrible movie but um it is the only ending that will shock that family out of a cycle of self-destruction any other ending and they will keep on making the same mistakes and the reason that you were so upset and are still so upset is because you did the same thing the fitzgeralds did i did took anna for granted i did I did. And I, I expected the story to skew the way it was skewing. Right. And, um, yeah, I remember I had, I sat on the edge of my bathtub and I just put the book on the floor and I had a sob. I don't mean like, (laughs) I don't mean like a tear trickling down the cheek. I mean, blow my nose. That's it. My day is over. I'm going to bed. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Did did you know all along you were going to give it that ending? Yeah. Okay. Do you always, do you always know how your books are going to end? I do. Although in the case of a spark of light, I knew how it was going to begin. Ah, good point. I mean, it's the reverse. Good point. Okay. Listen, will you just tell everybody kind of where they can find you, um, what you're doing, how to get to you online, all that. So, um, you can go to my website, which is www.jodypico.com and that's J O D I 
P-I-C-O-U-L-T. You can sign up for my newsletter there, which will allow you to not just hear what I'm listening to and reading and uh, watching every month, but also will give you updates on anywhere I'm appearing in case it's in an area near you. You can also find me on Facebook. I have a Jody Pico page there. And you can also follow me on Twitter, which is at Jody Pico. Yep. And you're fun and funny on there too. I love following you. And guys, we'll all have all these links for you. I forgot I'm also Jody Pico on Instagram. Sorry. <laughs> oh yes. All the socials, all right. the socials. Thank you for being on today. Thank, Thank you, you for, for your just me. intelligence and you're such an interesting person and you're thoughtful. And, um, I, I like the way that you're leading and I like the way that you make us think. And I love your characters and I love your work. And I, you can just, I just guarantee you, as long as you'll keep writing, you're going to have at least one book sale with me every time. <laughs> every single time. So you can just take that to the bank. Um, anyway, appreciate you so much, Jody. Of course. Thank you, Jen. This has been great. Bye. Just a, a real delight to have such an accomplished writer on the podcast today. And thanks for listening. And thanks for, um, wading into some murky waters with me today. And, um, I appreciate who you are as a listener. Jody asked me before we started recording, like, who's your listener? And, you know, I don't know what to expect out of them. And I said, this is a really, um, this is an intelligent community and one that has a lot of generosity toward one another, curious about the world, um, tends to give one another the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I really believe in you as listeners and as a community able um, to manage discussions where everyone else is simply screaming. And so um, even if today's episode was challenging, which it probably was one way or another, um, I, I'm, I'm grateful that we get to have this, that we have a space where we can um, have productive dialogue together and listen and, and just consider potential paths in which we can come together. And so anyway, I'm grateful to Jody for bringing um, her work and her research to bear. And guys, I mean, Jody's got 25 novels. And so all of her work is, she pushes us. She pushes us. Um, you know, her last book was on white supremacy. So she does not wade into easy waters at all. And I, I find that courageous. And I find it admirable. And it's many of her books have made me think. So um, we're going to have them all linked. Gosh, the transcript page is going to be a thousand pages long because she has 25 novels, as I mentioned. But um, her her books, her sites, everything that she's working on, I'll have it all over at jenhatmaker.com. Uh, so you can sort of follow along to one of, one of the great novelists of our generation. And so um, thank you for being here. Thank you for all your great feedback on this series. I mean, we had all kinds of writers and I like that. I like a space that is not homogenous, where every single guest is just like the one before. Um, I like dipping into different genres and different spaces and different kinds of thinkers and leaders. And so that's what you're going to get here. Um, that is what you're going to get. And I like um, that you can appreciate that and that you keep coming back for more. So you're not going to want to miss next week. We continue the fun um, with more amazing conversations. And it is my joy and delight to host them and to host you. So thanks, you guys, for being amazing listeners. And I'll see you next week. Calling all makers and creatives. Jennifer Allwood can show you how to turn your creative hobby into a booming business. Jennifer has an online coaching group called The Creator's Inner Circle, and she has reserved spots just for you, my For the Love listeners. Visit creatorsinnercircle.com slash Jen Hatmaker to learn more.
That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.